Great news for Informed Pregnancy Plus subscribers. Dive into our Core Connection course included with your subscription. Hosted by Natalie Headings, a pre- and postnatal exercise specialist and ACSM certified personal trainer, she's an incredible teacher. This five-video series equips you with essential insights to understand what your pelvic floor and core are, how they work, and how to enhance pelvic floor and core strength and proper function during and after your pregnancy and birth. Learn about pelvic floor basics, key postural adjustments, effective muscle releases, and breathing techniques for a healthier core and floor. Don't wait. Visit informedpregnancy.tv and get started with the invaluable core connection today. Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. In this episode, we're going to take a deeper look at sleep for children and moms of all ages and stages. In addition to getting the 411 on general sleep habits and schedules, we will explore issues like sleep regression, seasonal time changes, and traveling, especially into different time zones. My guest today, a formerly sleep-deprived mom, is a fellow doctor of chiropractic. She spent many years studying kinesiology and has a background in obstetrics, pediatrics, and child development. She found her passion helping others deal with the same struggles she experienced as a new parent, getting sleep. She's a proud member of the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine and has helped thousands of families discover the tools they needed for better sleep. Dr. Sarah Mitchell, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad to be here. I'm excited because, you know, sleep is as important. It's crucial. I remember from when I used to get some. And tonight, I know I'm going to learn things from you, and our audience will learn from you, too. So let's get to know you better, and then we'll jump into sleep. Where are you from originally? I'm originally from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Hey, do you speak languages besides English? I used to speak French. I took it all the way through school, but you don't use it and you lose it. So I'm embarrassed to even pretend that I speak French and at Otto, this point. Ottawa is the capital of Canada. It is the capital. And, and so just, because of that, it's very dual language. Yeah. Yeah. So did you use it there, like on the street or just in school? Um, mostly just in school, okay. but every now and again, if you travel to Montreal, which is just two hours away, you would use it in convenience stores and ordering a drink and that type of thing. Yeah, but two hours is two mm-hmm. hours. Mm-hmm. I use it sometimes for breakfast. Ah, très bien. Croissant. Excellent. That's as far as I go. That's good. That's good. (laughs) So when you, doctor of chiropractic uh, and kinesiology, which came first for you? Kinesiology came first. That's my four-year undergrad. And then I went to the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College in Toronto for another four years. Okay. So I think a lot of people don't even know what kinesiology is. Why don't we start there? It's the study of movement in the human body. I'm glad we got that behind us. There we go. It sounds like a funky, like deep term, but it's the study of movement, human movement. Yeah. It's formally known as physical education. Yeah. yeah. Kinesiology sounds more. It, doesn't it sound more? Like mm-hmm. it, once you're paying all that money, I don't know, in Canada, is it just free or do you have to pay for education? <laughs> um, it's not free, but it's much, much less expensive than here. Yeah. So mm-hmm. once you're paying something for it, you should call it something fancy. Yeah. And what made you study human movement? I was always really athletic and just enjoyed movement and sports and moving my body. And it just was like a 
Very natural fit. All sorts of sports? Um, yeah, I was jack of all trades and master of none. So I played volleyball, basketball, touch football. Those are my favorites. I play all of those things on video games, <laughs> and I still sweat. Very good. I don't Very know. good. I have to study kinesiology of the thumbs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You do. You Four do. years of studying movement. Mm-hmm. Is that the goal there to understand movement, or is the goal there to facilitate movement? There is lots of different aspects you could go in. A lot of my colleagues went into like physical therapy, occupational therapy, um, became phys ed teachers. Some went to med school. So it's kind of like, I don't know, here they might call it pre-med. I'm not really sure. Mm. Um, yeah, but kinesiology is movement specifically. Like it's a big focus on movement. Um, our coursework included like anatomy, physiology, biology, philosophy of sport. Mm-hmm. You could go into like practicums and learn ballroom dancing. Oh, wow. I had a great time doing that. Um, you could also learn sailing. You could study the psychology of sport. You could do exercise physiology. So it was quite broad. Yeah, it's broad in the sense, but it's all like movement oriented. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things you can do with it after you have a very deep understanding of movement, probably deeper than most people. I mean, four years is a Absolutely. long time to study movement, although yeah. there are a lot of little bits and pieces mm-hmm. in the human body that kind of all work together in this magical way that takes time to understand. I think we're always learning about it. I think there's so much about the body that we still don't understand. And there's going to be some really big discoveries in the next hundred years that are going to blow our minds. I was at a big medical conference and the president of the conference got up and held up four fingers for the whole crowd. And nobody knew what he was talking about. And all of a sudden he goes, I can safely say we understand about 4% of how the body works. And I was like, shame on you for exaggerating by 50%. (laughs) We understand so little, but we understand a lot more than we used to, and that's kind of refreshing and cool to do stuff with. Yeah. Um, From kinesiology, did you always think going to chiropractic? When did that come? That came in around like third or fourth year as I was looking at the different master's programs to go into, and I liked kinesiology because I liked the idea of being able to diagnose and then implement a plan and follow through. Mm. So it's been a great baseline because it's, you know, segued me and and those clinical assessment skills have really been helpful in my current practice with parents. Yeah, it sounds great. I mean, that's the dream, right? Somebody comes in with an issue if they're not coming for basic maintenance. Somebody comes in with an issue and then you, you figure out what the issue is, come up with a plan for how to rectify mm-hmm. it, treat, and then move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my favorite thing is asking the right questions. Yeah, that's a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Before you went to chiropractic school, had you been to a chiropractor's? Yes, I had. For all your sporty stuff? Yes, I had. Okay, yeah. so you've already experienced the magic personally. Yes, absolutely. Cool. And then where along the way did you start having kids? You have two kids. I have two kids. Yeah, they're now six and nine. Ooh, fun ages. Yeah, it's very fun. It's very fun and and challenging, of course, but you're always learning. I think every stage is challenging, but you're like out of diapers, out of strollers, out of, you know, you can just go do stuff together as a family. Or, or by yourself. Yeah, <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, I've been blessed this week. I've been at a conference in Palm Springs, so I've been away from the kids for Ooh. four or five days. So it's um, it's a different stage, you know? It's, it's totally it's different. Nice. And so for people listening with little tiny kids, you'll get there. <laughs> I just want you to know you will get there. It seems so far away, but you'll We have get four there. kids, and when the littlest turned five, it was oh. the first time, now he's nine, but when he first turned five, was the first time it felt quiet in my house with all six of us there. 
Well, they were reading. They were doing their own thing. So yeah. I was like, wow, this is yeah. kind of great. Yeah, that's really nice. But you don't have to constantly entertain them. Yeah. yeah. Or And when you have, like, one school pickup, that's another oh, milestone. Oh, they're all together? <gasps> oh, it's the best. It's wonderful. You know, milestones. People have different milestones in their baby book. Like, this is when they lifted their head. And this is when they started cruising around the house. I have, like, this is when he poured milk on his own cereal. And I slept <laughs> for 15 extra minutes. That is a highlight moment for me. I like the one where this is the age where they were able to get up and go unplug their own iPads and sit on the couch for oh, that's really half nice. an hour while and you even doze. do the volume. Yeah, Dad! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. So you started having kids during chiropractic school or was... No, I was out. Um, out. Out. Yes, I was. Um, I was a geriatric pregnancy, as they would say here in the United States. Uh-huh. I don't think I ever heard that phrase in Canada. Oh, I don't have that term. Again. Yeah, but I was thirty-six and thirty-nine when I had my kids, so I was um, getting getting on, as you would say. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and my sons. That was twenty eleven. Yes. Okay, so you were already practicing as yes. a chiropractor. Mm-hmm, oh, mm-hmm. That, how is that being pregnant and then postpartum and how you know? And well, how it was practice? very life changing experience. Um, and there's a, you know, my husband was working for BlackBerry at the time. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. you remember that keyboard? Yeah, Doesn't right that after, seem antiquated? After the fax machine. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And then he got laid off because oh. BlackBerry went down, and so he got a job with Google in the United States. That's why we came to California. And so then I couldn't work here. I didn't have a visa, which was a really interesting life experience. Is he not Canadian? Or no, he... we're both Canadian. Oh, but, but he had a work visa? He had a work visa, and I didn't. So mm-hmm. that was kind of an interesting life experience because you really have a lot of time to think about what exactly you want to do and what's meaningful for you. I was really fortunate in that, one, I couldn't work, but also that we could afford that I couldn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives you a great opportunity to think about what is really meaningful for you. And you know, having him not sleep when he was born was a real shock. And I think that's the word. It's like, here I am. I've got eight years of health education. Oh, my God, I can't get my kiddo to sleep. Hmm. I should know what to do. As a newborn, I couldn't get him to sleep. I had a really difficult labor and delivery. So I was actually undiagnosed gestational diabetes. Oh, wow. Who would guess? You have none of the uh, lifestyle factors. Except that you were freaking old, according to the Americans, (laughs) you know. Uh, yeah, I was old. I was old. So I actually tested negative to at that. At 28 weeks? At 20 weeks, yeah. And then, and then the last couple of weeks, you know, I should have pressed it. This is where you always have to be an advocate for yourself, right? Like I couldn't exist without like a massive water bottle in my hand. Oh, and just so constantly. Thirsty. I was so And everybody pees thirsty. a lot, so that's not alarming. Right, exactly. And so I, you know, the pee stick didn't show any sugar in my blood, mm. probably because it was so diluted. And yeah. I said, you know, I just want you to know that this feels really weird that I need to be constantly drinking this much, that I'm so thirsty. And they said, well, the test was negative. How did you figure it out? When he was born, he was 10 pounds, 4 ounces. Oh, my God. I mean, through the magic of podcasts, nobody can see how petite you are. (laughs) But that seems like a lot of baby for you. Well, you're very flattering. (laughs) It was a lot of baby for anyone. But, you know, it's not so much even the size. It's it's, they knew from his fat pattern distribution. Uh And then they tested his blood. Um, And he was was sunny side up. And we had shoulder dystocia. So he was stuck at the shoulder. So he was actually blue for three minutes. I don't want to scare any of these pregnant people out there. Because this is a very... You got through it. Yeah, exactly. He's Yeah, he's healthy. And um, Were you here or in Canada? I was in Canada. You were in Canada. Yeah. um, I'm just curious. How did you get over the dystocia? Was it just a lot oh, of movement? Oh, gosh. Or? It was 20 minutes of like 25 people in the room. Flipping and, over this way, flipping whew, over that yeah, way? Yeah, and people like climbing on top of me uh. and pushing down on my Oh, pushing abdomen on your belly to get the baby to get to come him through? down. And, um, Talk about kinesiology. 
Yeah. That's a lot of human movement. It's never a good sign when your doula starts crying. Oh, no. I <laughs> yeah. am a doula. I'm yeah, a, I know. I cry, I know. I cry at everybody. I know. I Well, there's tears of joy, and then yeah. there's tears of like, oh, my gosh, this tears. kiddo is, it's is like, blue. It's but, like when the flight attendant flies for the jump seat, you know? Yeah. That's a different kind of turbulence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was wild. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, God bless you. Mm-hmm. So, but then they got the baby out. They got got him out, and he was great. They were worried that they'd broken my sacrum because they heard cracks, Ooh. or that they'd broken his collarbone. Oy. But I really think it was just this one nurse's knuckles. Oh, really? She kept pushing down on me. I heard <laughs> it, too. That's the best case scenario. <laughs> <laughs> totally dodged a bullet there. Um, and then he was, you know, he was in the special care nursery because he was um, hypoglycemic, so he had to be on sugar and water. So, that you know, that kind of impeded breastfeeding a little bit because he wasn't really hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was so definitely a tough... those things all contribute probably to sleep issues? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of things that contributed. One was my idea of who I thought I should be and what I wanted my experience to be like. You know, you have these preconceived notions and I wanted to be natural parenting, nursing on demand, um, all of that. So I never wanted to hear him cry. Every time he cried, I was like, oh, he must be hungry. Mm -hmm. And so I fed him and I inadvertently taught him that the boob was a soother. Right. And I missed all the sleepy cues because they can be really hard to read for a lot of people, especially if kids are overtired. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So meaning they're tired, but you're feeding them. Yeah, exactly. Because you think they're hungry. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and then you end up having these little snackers. I'm right? not even like kidding. That is how I feel right now as an adult. Like I know I'm not sleepy enough mm-hmm. and then I feel tired. So I try to eat my sleep. Absolutely. But you can't. I, maybe I need to do sleep teaching. You need some more sleep. We, we're going to talk about that a All little right. bit later on, but absolutely. Well, actually, it's time for a natural little break, but okay. we're going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to talk about the rest of your story because it's very interesting. And, um, thank you for sharing it so openly. I think a lot of people will learn from it. But also sleep in general, sleep teaching and what that means, getting on a good sleep schedule, and then all the interesting things that come up that knock off your great sleep schedule. And how to deal with those. And then in our final segment, Sleep for Moms. Don't Sounds go good. Anywhere. We'll be right back. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike. Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Dr. Sarah Mitchell. Wow, that was an intense first birth story. It was. I actually feel a little sore. (laughs) (laughs) And then you had another baby. Yes, and things went much more easily. Did you get the gestational diabetes again? I did not. Interesting. 
isn't it? Yes, it's very interesting. Things went very well. I like to say that Mother Nature gives you one that keeps you humble and one that gives you confidence. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So my second one was definitely a bigger confidence builder. And I started teaching her to sleep from like day one because I was like, we are not doing that again. What was the birth weight? She was nine pounds, seven ounces. Oh, so still big baby, yeah. even without Yeah. Without uh, the gestational diabetes. Yes. And no dystocia. No dystocia. No. Nobody jumping on you, cracking knuckles. Nothing like ribs. that. No, I was induced a little bit early because they were a little bit worried about her size. size. My husband is six one, so and I'm five eight, so I mean, mm. you know, it's nothing too crazy. Thinking um, about something you said just a minute ago, I feel like I got three that keep me humble. Oh. And one that half keeps me humble and half gives me confidence. Mm. Yeah. Mm, okay. Well, so there's, that's my new statement. Yeah, I guess your statistics change when you go to four. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Or if you're the dad. Yeah. Okay. So you had an easier time the second time around, which is also nice for people listening to hear that um, I have a lot of times people have a rough birth like that the first time and then assume that a cesarean birth is going to be better the second time. But I feel like once you've got that vaginal birth behind you, there's a decent shot at the second one being much simpler. Yeah, I had the option to go to C-section. And I said, well, kind of already wrecked one body part. Let's just stick with that one Let's body stick with part it. for now. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a tough call. It's a really tough yeah. call. It's a, a tough personal call. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then you started to touch on after your first was born, not figuring out sleep. And is that when you got involved in becoming a sleep specialist? Yeah, that's when I started researching everything I could about sleep. I turned to my friends first and said, oh my gosh, like, how do you get this kid to sleep? And I got a lot of, and I was in Canada at the time, I got a lot of, oh, just enjoy your baby and this too shall pass. (gasps) So they were all struggling with it. So they were. And and one of those phrases came from my friend who was a medical doctor. And in Canada, our our GPs see kids. And I was just floored by that because I thought for sure she would have the answers, you know. And and it was really an eye-opening experience to know that, you know, here's two well-educated women in the healthcare field and neither one of us knew how to get our kiddos to sleep, Hmm. right? Um, So I'm relieving all of those women out there right now who might be struggling with sleep and feeling like they should know what to do. The thing about getting your kiddo to sleep is it's actually not that natural, right? Oh, really? It's not really that natural. Like you think about the first few weeks of birth, it seems very natural. I think our kiddos actually kind of trick us those first couple of weeks. Because they sleep so much? Yes. that's That's the only time that sleeping like a baby actually really comes into play. It's like they wake up, they eat. And they fall back asleep because they're growing mm. at such an exponential rate. They need all that sleep. I feel like there's two times that it happens. Maybe I'm wrong. But one is then right when they come out and then magically when they turn into teenagers. It's the same pattern. Eat a lot, <laughs> go to sleep, just wake up and eat and go right back to sleep. Sounds about right. But in between, it could be a struggle. Yeah, in between, it's definitely a struggle. And I think those first couple of weeks, they kind of trick you thinking, oh, this isn't so bad. They just eat and go back down. There's actually kind of a magic window between four and eight weeks of age where we're actually kind of teaching kids at that time what sleep looks like. But we don't even know we're doing it at the time. It's inadvertent. Because the drive to sleep is biological, right? We all have a buildup of a protein in our blood that signals our brain that it's time to sleep. But the way we sleep is a learned habit. And if you think about yourself, you know, you hop into bed, you find your favorite position, and then you can relax yourself down into sleep. Mm -hmm. And if I told you tonight you can't sleep in that position, you you as a complex human being, you would be able to toss and turn and find something else that's comfortable for you. Like people have to do in pregnancy? Yes. Mm -hmm. You would adapt, Mm -hmm. right? But it is a learned habit. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not. It's not. You're right. It's not natural. You have a way that you yeah. naturally settle into slumber. Most of us do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if you had to change, you typically could. 
Exactly. And when we're talking about sleep training, which is a term that I strongly dislike because we train our dogs, but we teach our children, you're actually teaching that gift of being able to relax yourself into sleep by finding some comfortable position. Or often with kiddos, it's like a repetitive action that's soothing. Like sucking is very soothing. So, you know, you you often see that habit emerge early. Um, Even in utero sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But when we're doing sleep teaching, you know, after four months of age, a child may, you know, stroke the fabric on their sleep sack, or they might suck on a thumb or a finger, or they might rub the back of their head into the mattress. It's very repetitive actions that help them Three out of four of them would just like, I don't know what they were doing with their belly button. They would just like rub or touch their belly button. Yeah. I was so grateful because my sister-in-law's kid had a little stuffed animal. Mm -hmm. And if they ever, God forbid, forgot to bring it, lost it, yeah. I mean, the baby just wouldn't sleep. But our kid, it was belly button. You could, like, never forget it. No, no, it's, it's always, always available. There. You just couldn't zip up the one, you know, yeah, the, the one-piece sleeper they yeah. have There's access. a lot of sensory stuff associated with sleep like that, hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I tried it. It didn't help me. To <laughs> get the lunch out, though? <laughs> yeah, everything's all clear. Good. Glad to hear it. <laughs> um, but they do kind of look at us. Two things go through my mind at the same time. One is, like, they look at us to teach them everything. They come out knowing things that are hardwired, but looking to learn a lot about the world that they know nothing about and for us to teach them lots of different things. And so it makes sense that one of the things that they would look to us is teach me how we sleep on this planet. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I always wonder, and it could be similar, but I always wonder what other animals do. Like, do they also have some form of... I'll have to come back for another podcast on I that love one, it. because I haven't yeah, researched that sure. yet. I like to learn some things from observing other animals, but not everything. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sometimes they eat the baby, which I don't think is yeah. healthy for us. No, not so much. No, Mother Nature did a really good job making them really cute, right? So no matter how much they're tormenting us with lack of sleep, that the, we still just love them so yeah, much, our little babies. It's but, insane. Yeah. I don't even know why. They torment you during pregnancy, <laughs> during labor and delivery, they, during <laughs> sleep, and you still just love them. And it makes you a better person, makes you grow and evolve in ways that you never thought possible. Yeah, right? and the prolactin, I think, makes you submissive to them so that even though your needs are mm-hmm. different than their needs, you put your needs aside and and just yes, give to do. them with everything you have. Yes, you do. Yeah. So sleep teaching, mm-hmm. is that four to eight week, is that a good time to start that? Or is that when is the right time to yeah. sort of get involved? Well, I think there is a lovely window, like a no tears window between four and eight weeks when you can start setting up sleep habits, cues that it's sleeping time, and teaching your kiddo long term, like where you want them to sleep. Because it's great when you're kiddo sleeps on you, but that's something that's really hard to maintain long term, Yeah. right? And so in my online class, I teach parents how to get onto a flexible schedule so they know kind of what to expect. Like my baby just woke up. When do I need to be making sleep happen? Because that's another thing I think many people don't realize is it's your job to decide when sleep needs to happen to prevent Mm. your child being overtired because sleep begets sleep. The more well-rested your kiddo is, the easier it's going to be to get them to fall asleep and then stay asleep. I think I said this on an earlier podcast, but we didn't do it for nine months with my son, my firstborn, because mm-hmm. we like didn't want to make him cry and all sorts of things. He got to nine I think it's personal. It's going to be different from Absolutely. kid to kid and parent to parent, but mm-hmm. he was so cranky during the day because he was so tired. Mm-hmm. 
And we were awfully cranky because we were so tired. And at some point, we were like, we got to try this sleep thing. Mm -hmm. And we did one of the methods, and it took about a week. And he finally slept through the night. And all of us, him in particular, but all of us were much happier people. Mm -hmm. The way during his waking hours that he observed the world and that he interacted with anybody Mm -hmm. was night and day, no pun intended. And he was such a much happier kid. And we were kicking ourselves for not doing it earlier. Absolutely. I like to say you can be loving, attached, and well-rested. And you mentioned earlier about how we prioritize our kids over everything, and that's so important. And then there comes a time when you have to ask yourself, is waking up, you know, every two or three hours for a nine-month-old, is this sustainable? And is it prioritizing our family, right? Because I like moms to remember that they're an important person in the equation as well. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, you know, you have to prioritize your kiddo for sure, like through most of your life. But, you know, at what point do you say, this isn't working for us as a unit any longer? And that time is, you know, varies from person to person. I agree with you. There's no one way to do it. Everybody's different. You know, you can do sleep teaching at four months. You can do it at two and a half years, you know, whatever works for you. Sometimes at four months and then again at two and a half years. Well, absolutely. You, yeah. But in terms of basic sleep teaching, you have online programs like courses. I do, yeah. And that people can access from anywhere. Yeah, they're self-paced. So I have my newborn class is zero to eight weeks. And oh, it's wow. for expecting parents and new parents. And it's how to gift your newborn the love of sleep. Because mm. if you start it on the right track using some simple, tear-free things, I really think you can get those long stretches of sleep. Um, that's what I did with my second, right? We got her sleeping six, eight hours in a stretch. I would also like to point out, though, that temperament is a really important factor in the equation of how well your baby sleeps. Um, my son is much more intense, and I see that now. Oh, you're talking about the children's temperament. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> or both. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> one, one of the Stanford sleep docs that I network with said to me, well, we don't really sleep train kids. We sleep, sleep train parents. Mm-hmm. And there is some truth to that, right? And the thing about sleep training or sleep teaching is that you're actually, you know, a lot of people think it's about being a very controlling person, but actually sleep teaching is really all about giving up control. It's about saying, oh, gosh, the way we're doing things just isn't working for us anymore. I can no longer make you sleep by the incessant rocking or reinserting the pacifier or feeding you back to sleep. And I'm going to be here for you. I'm going to communicate with you and acknowledge you. But like, you got to figure out how to relax yourself into sleep. And I'll offer you some verbal and physical reassurance. But I'm confident that you can do this. Hmm. Right. And that's scary. (laughs) That's scary for a lot of people. I did two horrible things with our first. I would hold the car seat Mm. and swing it around back and forth, just up and down, gentle rocking back and forth. Did you get tendinitis? Oh, yeah. My shoulder was a wreck for (laughs) a year. My husband's elbow, yep. For a year. And then the other thing is that kind of worked, but it was kind of weird at the same time, was literally putting his car seat on top of the dryer and turning it on and a little grumbling and bumbling. Repetitive. Yeah, but after a while, it stopped working. Yeah. And that's like that four-month sleep regression, right? They wake up to the world around them. Oh. And they're starting to learn object permanence. Yeah, let's talk about that. In yeah. Because so there's a, a myriad of different ways to teach them to sleep and get them on a healthy mm-hmm. schedule. But then even when they're on the ideal schedule for your family, mm-hmm. things just knock you off course. What is sleep regression? 
So every time you hear regression, I want you to think progress. So your child is growing either physically by getting teeth or neurologically by learning new skills like motor coordination, learning to pull themselves up to standing, walking, rolling, all those things that could distract them from relaxing themselves into sleep. So with teething, it can be the inflammation and the discomfort in their gums that is distracting them from relaxing down into sleep. And with motor leaps, often I see kids, one of the main signs with motor leaps is being content, but awake in the middle of the night for like an hour, just hanging out in their crib. And the way I kind of interpret it is that they're just distracted or thinking about that new skill or wanting to practice that new skill. And that prevents them from falling back to sleep. And that's a problem if you are still responsible for making your baby sleep by rocking them or nursing them back to sleep because you're lying there going like, when are they going to cry? When do I have to go in there and help them? But if you have an independent sleeper who can be put down completely calm but awake and put themselves to sleep at bedtime, then when those motor leaps happen in the middle of the night, you can just grab a pillow and put it over your head because you know your child is capable of putting They're themselves be able to back do to it. sleep. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that term, independent sleeper. Independent sleeper. That's what it's all that's about. Like, that's one of those milestones. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. A big happy milestone. Yeah. And so sleep regression will just happen naturally through various developmental stages. Yes. So there's definitely the four-month sleep regression is the big one, right? They learn object permanence, the fact that you exist even though they can't see you. Oh, so you're there even though you're not there. Yeah. Where is that woman? I surface from a sleep cycle. I'm going to cry out and see if someone comes. Mm -hmm. I'm testing that theory. And so the signs of the four-month sleep regression are waking up more in the night. Often parents, many parents have like a six to eight-hour stretch, and now their kiddo's waking up like every three hours in the night, a nighttime sleep cycle. Right. And they're like, why is that? They were doing so great. Well, now they're just more getting more and more aware of their world. So that's a big one. So is it more common with people who are not independent sleepers or does it happen either way? But kids who are independent sleepers will work their way through it. Exactly. Yeah. So I think you feel it more. Like with my first, he was awake almost every two hours. I was nursing him back to sleep, my son. I didn't really even feel it that badly (laughs) because it was already such a wreck. But with my daughter, who I started implementing these just healthy sleep habits from day one, she woke up a little bit more, but not much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wasn't wasn't so derailing. This is good info. Yes. And then the next sleep regression often comes with teething, right? Mm-hmm. And teething is so variable. I just had a lady on the phone the other day who her child was four months and got a tooth. That's very rare. Very average is like six months to get a tooth. That comes around nine months. There's a little bit of um, a separation anxiety at times. And so the, often they protest going to bed a little bit more. Anytime you're going to get molars, so around one year, around two years, that can be distracting at bedtime. And so there may be more bedtime resistance or waking up in the night. Um, And you're not really sure what it is because molars can be hard to see. The thing with teething is it's a hindsight diagnosis because the pain is usually the worst right before the tooth pierces through. So you're like, why is this kid so fussy? What's going on? I don't see any teeth. And And then then they're like, boom. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, that's what that was. Yeah. And then in the toddler years, there is like sleep regressions abound. Um, Eric Erickson's psycho-emotional stages, right? Learning what boundaries exist. I want power. I want to test the world. Is it safe here? And so they often are looking for control. That can happen anywhere from 18 months onwards. And I actually see a lot of this starting around like 14 months of age. Definitely see um, toddler boys. And then so they're, at that point, they can sometimes just get out and 
Oh, God. Make havoc. Yeah. Well, one, they're so much more opinionated. Two, their lungs are so much bigger. Yeah. They terrify <laughs> parents. They really, yeah. really do. And neighbors. <laughs> yes. Yes. And neighbors. And and the best thing you can do is keep your toddler in a crib until at least two and a half years of age. If you can, for safety reasons, sometimes they crawl out, but throw them in a sleep sack so they can't throw their leg over, over the, the railing. Oh. You want to keep them in that crib until yeah. at least two and a half if you can. Our first was good till three years. With the second, he taught her how to get out at like 15 <gasps> months. So it was like a mess. Oh my gosh. Yeah. All right. I'm pretty sure I'm having, by the way, I don't know if this is common, but the 45-year sleep regression is <laughs> kicking in. Uh, we got to take a little break. When we come back, a few more things like troubleshooting that knock babies off of their sleep schedules. And then sleep for parents. Hooray. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. <laughs> hey, everyone. It's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart. Literally. Omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new Omega-3 soft gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite... It has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We are talking to Dr. Sarah Mitchell. Okay, so sleep regression aside, other things that just happen naturally, time changes, babies get sick, or kids, little kids get sick. Sometimes you travel, especially if you travel over time zones. Those are the things I know that screwed us up badly. They do. How do you deal with these? Well, time changes are pretty tough. Like I have a lot of clients that go to China and India, and that's a significant time change, like 12 to 16 hours. So what do you do? you do the best that you can to survive while you're on that trip, basically. Maybe that means bringing out old sleep crutches that you use, like nursing back to sleep or rocking back to sleep, uh, right? It's exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's tough. Obviously, you'll want to get your child out in the sun to inhibit melatonin, which signals your brain that it's time to sleep, trying to adjust them. But in general, it takes an entire day to adjust to one hour of time change. Wow. So you do a nine-hour time change, Mm -hmm. takes nine days, and then you travel home. Exactly. (laughs) And then it takes nine hours again. Exactly. So with younger kids, like I use awake times. So that's the time that your body can comfortably stay awake before your sleep drive rises again and tells your body that it's time to sleep. For example, a six-month-old can really comfortably stay awake for about two and a half hours. If she goes past that, then it gets harder to get her to fall asleep and then stay asleep. You get like short naps and often some nighttime waking. So when you're traveling, you just implement those same awake times. Like for a toddler who's like 12 months, the awake times are like three and a half to four hours between sleep. So from mm-hmm. when she wakes up, first nap, wakes up, second nap. Regardless of what time of day it, it is. Exactly. So this is what I teach in my classes. It's like a flexible schedule because I want you to have the parenting skills to go into another country or have a time change and be able to kind of like manage the day and know when their bodies need to sleep because the signs can be tough, right? Mm-hmm. And then when you come back, you know, you give your kiddo's body a chance to adapt to the time again. And then you might have to, it depends on your child's temperament. 
you might have to reinstitute some sleep teaching. Some kids will go right back to normal. Oh, I'm in my room. I know what's expected of me. Whereas other kids, you give them an inch. They're like, oh, I loved it when she came in and lay in bed with me. Or I oh, loved no. it when she rocked yeah. me. I'm going to see if I can get that again. And then you're going to have to be communicative and tell them what the boundary is. And then, you know, enforce enforce it. Yeah. 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 What about time clock changes like daylight savings time? Right. Daylight saving time uh, starts in the spring and it ends in the fall. And the fall one is more of the killer because that 6 a.m. wake up is now falling back. So the clock says 5 a.m. The clock says 5. Yeah. But yesterday that was 6. Exactly. So they're waking up. Mm-hmm. At five. Yeah, psychologically, it's really difficult. And with any time changes, you want to change their schedules gradually in like 15-minute chunks. So do you start before, like a couple of weeks before? You can. Or? You can do that. I've never been super proactive like that. <laughs> I also wonder if it'll work because the light change hasn't exactly. happened yet. Exactly. For some people, it does, and some people, it doesn't. For example, with spring forward, you know, your 6.30 wake-up is now 7.30, which sounds amazing, but it also means then that your 7.30 bedtime won't work. Your kid's not going to be ready to sleep at 7.30. They're not going to be ready to sleep till 8.30 at night, mm, right. right? So you put them down at 7.30, you're going to have a major battle on your hands. So try putting them down at 7, you know, or 15 minutes earlier, so 8.15. Mm-hmm. And then on Tuesday night, it's 8 o'clock. And then on Wednesday night, it's 7.45. So you're, you're bringing it back in 15-minute chunks, and that should naturally shift that wake-up time back to its normal. So don't expect that to happen time. all in one night. No. No, that's where people go wrong. So they try and shift by a whole hour, especially for kids under under one. Then that child gets overtired, and then they start waking up in the night. You want to do small chunks. Kids over one, you can chunk it in like 20 to 30-minute increments. Mm-hmm. Um, but Yeah, I remember the opposite problem, too. So they used to go to sleep at nighttime, and it's dark. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, it's the same time, but it's light. And they're like, mm-hmm. no, it's not bedtime. It's not dark outside. Exactly. That's why I love, like, okay-to-wake clocks that, you know, they turn a different Ooh. color when it's time for bedtime because that's the cue. Forget about what's happening outside. Just that's the cue. Just put out blackout shades and use yeah. that clock. Exactly. Exactly. That's really smart. That yeah. probably would have worked. Yes. It, do- it works well. We still use it with my six-year-old. The music comes on. We're in the living room. Oh, bedtime. It's, not my fault. Yeah. <laughs> it's the clock. I'm not the mean guy. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, very interesting. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when they get sick, things sometimes go haywire, too. They do, yeah. And, of course, you're always going to pick up your sick kiddo and offer them more compassion and more attention. And, again, it goes back to your child's temperament. Some kids get better, and they go right back to sleeping the way they were, and then other people, you know, get stuck in that giving them an inch and they take a mile. And everyone has different practices, but one thing that we always did was we never brought them into our bed because we found that no one slept well because that wasn't the conditions they were used to sleeping in. And so then when we brought them into bed, they were kind of so distracted by being there with us. They didn't sleep great. And then they kicked us. We I didn't sleep never great. sleep with the kids no. in bed. Oh, my gosh. So we never did that. But I definitely would sleep with my daughter sometimes in her room, like oh, either on the floor or I would pull up a, Ooh, that seems good a, for the a rocking chair. <laughs> yeah, right? Those things we, we prioritize our kids just to give them more comfort and making them feel safe. And then, you know, Again, it depends on your child's temperament. She went. She would go right back to normal. Or she might test me one night, Mama, you know, come sleep with me. And I would always acknowledge her. I think it's really important to always go back in, let them know they've been heard, and then tell them what's going to happen and then be able to follow through on that. Mm. It's nice to know what to expect instead of just, now we're going to do this. Yeah, exactly. Or, Where exactly. are you? You yeah. were just here picking me up yesterday. And also kind of gives them the cue that it, they'll do better when they're symptomatic, which is not really a message we want to drive home. 
Right. And it's weird because I have a lot of patients who love sleeping with the family bed and the kids are in bed with them all the yeah, time. I just can't even do it. No. I don't know why. I mean, part of it is the kicking. The closest I can ever come to what it feels like to be kicked a lot when you're pregnant is when my kid sleeps in bed with me. It's a lot yes. of kicking in the ribs and stuff. It Sometimes is. it's not always the ribs. It could be less pleasant than less that. Less pleasant. Well, I, I do love sleeping with my kids every now and again when my husband travels. Mm. But now they're older and I can reason with them. We didn't do this until they were three because you can't reason with terrorists. And before <laughs> age three, they are sleep terrorists, <laughs> yeah, right? That's how it feels. Another question that comes up a bunch is, uh, let's say you have a kid on a great sleep pattern, two, three-year-old, whatever, and then all of a sudden you have another kid, a baby, that you bring home, mm-hmm. especially if it's a small place that you have, maybe one or two bedrooms, and they're in the same area. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that could also, a screaming kid can mess up your sleep schedule with your toddler. It can, yeah. And again, Temperament. So some kids are more sensitive to noise than others. Fact. Mm-hmm. Right? Often what I see parents do or I advise is to have the newborn in a bassinet in the parents' room for ease of night feeds for a few months. And then they can room share. But you want to get that younger child sleeping longer consolidated stretches of sleep. Right? And that can vary depending on your child and your willingness to do some sleep teaching. Um, but then they can. Like I, I just worked with a family and they have a nine-month-old that's now sleeping in the same room as their three-year-old. Mm-hmm. And that's working out really well. Yeah, We did it. And I don't know if we did anything specific to make it happen. I just do know sometimes like the toddler, like, what's all the noise about? Mm-hmm. And then just go back to bed. Mm-hmm. So I was expecting it to be a lot more challenging than it turned out to be. And then it sort of worked out okay. But I know other people struggle with it harder than we do, maybe because of the temperament, like you said. Temperament. And toddler deep sleep is usually at the beginning of the night. And the risk of them waking up is closer to like that 4 or 5 a.m. range. And that's often when it's harder to get them back to sleep. So that can be the tough time of day. And the infant can be gone for another feeding then. Exactly. So noisy. Yes. All right. That's a lot of information about babies and toddlers and sleep. Let's talk about moms. Let's talk about moms. Moms need sleep, too. They are important people in the equation as well. Yes, and they need sleep, too. And often I find that we get kiddos sleeping, and then mom tells me that she's having trouble sleeping, that she's lying awake. Even if the kids are sleeping? Even if the kids are now sleeping. She just has trouble turning her brain off. Oh, right? Yeah. I think we, a lot of us have that. Yeah, I think so, too. And, you know... As adults, we should also have a bedtime routine, just like our kids do, a cue to our brain that sleep time is coming. I feel like right now, in, in, in my circles anyway, there's a lot of discussion about your morning routine, right? How you should be getting up, doing meditation or yoga or something for yourself, and then getting you know to your kids and, and your work. But I also think that we should have a discussion around our bedtime routine and how important that is and to be prioritizing sleep. And it can be a really hard thing to do because it's so not sexy, right? Sleeping... It's great, but it's not really a sexy thing to do. Like, I <laughs> I need a lot of sleep. I have an autoimmune disease, mm. um, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, that I was diagnosed postpartum with. And I remember being in chiropractic college and being shamed by my peers by the amount of sleep that I needed. And it didn't make me feel very good. You mm. know? I wish I could have been that person that could get up at, like, 4, 30, 5 o'clock and go to the gym. But it just, you know, now that I'm older, I can just say, it's just not who I am. Oh, that's nice. You know? <laughs> if we knew then what we know now. Yeah, it's just not who I am. But well, there's a lot of shame, I think, about all new parenting things for some reason. Oh, yeah, People absolutely. are very strongly opinionated. And if you're not doing it my way, you're 
suck. Right. And you know what I think that's about? I think like all of a sudden you're promoted to the most important job you've ever had, which is being the CEO of the life of a little person. And you love this job so intensely and it's so hard and overwhelming, but it's like so good all at the same time. And then you see someone else doing something differently than you are doing. And, you know, maybe having, quote unquote, better results in the sleep department or whatever. And that can often give people self-doubt and that little voice in their head saying, are you doing it right? Are you doing everything you can be for your child? And so to shut those voices down, sometimes they lash out and criticize the other person. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what I've seen in the mom circles. I see that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate because it can be so traumatizing for somebody who's already vulnerable. Oh, absolutely. To be judged that way. I've had clients come from attachment parenting groups. That's kind of my background, attachment parenting. You know, Dr. Sears, that Mm -hmm. whole thing, feeding on demand, baby wearing, co-sleeping, all of that. And I tried it, and it just didn't work for us, unfortunately. There was a night where I heard him crying, and I couldn't find him in the bed sheets. Oh, wow. (laughs) It was terrifying. Luckily, he was safely stowed in the bassinet. I'd just been so tired, I forgot where I'd put him. Okay. Um, And this woman had seven-month-old twins that were still co-sleeping. She was breastfeeding, and so all their naps took place on her. So she basically was, like, stuck in this rocking chair for three hours a day with kiddos, you know, on each breast, basically. And she told me, like, she'd posted in Facebook groups, and she got just got shamed for wanting more sleep, which was kind of similar to what I had experienced at the beginning with the just enjoy your baby. Mm-hmm. But hers was just that much more. She's like, I can't tell my friends that I'm reaching out to you. I can't. I can't share that with That's anyone. so sad. I know. That's so sad. So sad. So, yes, there is a lot of shame. Yeah. A lot of shame. I mean, the way you make morning sound sounds kind of nice. Just that whole routine that sounds nice. Even the morning routine. Yeah. And then we'll talk about a nighttime. But it sounds much better. My morning routine is like jump out of bed and uh, hop down to 7-Eleven and get the bathtub-sized coffee. And then just jump into work and work until I can't move anymore. And right. Pass out. Right. And start again. <laughs> right. Well, Yours sounded a whole lot better with the meditation <laughs> and the gym and the and eight oh, hours gosh. of sleep. And, well, I'm working on it. I'm a work okay. in progress. Well, I, I'm not great working out first thing in the morning, but I have been able to manage to carve out 10 minutes for myself where I listen to like daily affirmations or some meditation. That's really great. Yeah, it actually really changes your whole feeling of the day. You already feel like you've done something for yourself, which is self-care. So self-care, we think that it's like the spa and a massage or getting your nails done. Self-care is something small that you can do for yourself that makes you feel good, and you can do it every single day. And you can do it cheap, and you yeah. can do it anywhere. Yeah. It's kind of like doesn't require a lot. It requires you to make time for yourself. Yes, and I think about going for a coffee. It's not even about the coffee, I think, some for some people. Well, for, for me, I like coffee, but I think it's the act that I took time out of my day to do something just for me. Oh, for and, me, and for the survival and the dunking <laughs> sticks, but yeah, everyone everyone's different. <laughs> yeah, but um, what about so you said nighttime routine for adults, mm-hmm. like a bedtime routine? Mm-hmm. Does that mean aiming for the same time frame each night, or if you can, yes, that's what I do. That I found that has really helped me having a sleep schedule. There is nothing better than waking up before your alarm, and you do that when you're on kind of a regular bedtime. Oh, so you I've, know, you have like your internal alarm. Yeah, your internal clock just wakes up. You just up. go to sleep and wake up around the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. And so it's very tempting to be pulled into like Netflix, or especially for moms who've been with kids all day. Like, oh, I just want to like veg out and watch TV, or even spend time with my partner. I feel bad that I'm not spending time with my partner, and so they delay bedtime. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they wake up the next day tired because they didn't get enough sleep and it Mm -hmm. becomes this vicious circle. And so it's totally not sexy, but like I have a set time where I know I'm going to be going to bed, even if I don't really feel exhausted, I know I'm going to go to bed to protect and invest in my next day. You're sleep teaching yourself. Yeah, you really are. 
Yeah, you really oh. are. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. And when you see how well it works with the kids, mm-hmm. it makes sense that we should be doing that ourselves. Mm-hmm. But we prioritize other things or we think other things should be important. It's a big commitment. It is a big you commitment. You have to really like. But we know there's so much research to support how important sleep is in our physical and emotional well-being. Right. So for me, I just it's kind of become a. Sounds a like there would be less road rage. There would be less road rage. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, I've learned a ton from you. Great. And um, it's a joy to meet you. This is my first time meeting you, and I'm grateful. Well, me too. It's been fun chatting with you and, and talking about things that are meaningful. And thanks uh, for sharing all this with our audience who, like, are in the trenches. Yeah. Many of them are in the trenches now. So you have a lot of, obviously, great information and tools, uh, online tools that people can use. Where do we find you? My website and company is helpingbabiessleep.com. That's practical. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I work with kids from basically birth in the newborn stage all the way up to age four. And I also have an online class for helping moms sleep. Oh, wow. That's mm-hmm. almost a different URL. But it's all at helpingbabiesleep.com. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And if you have other questions about pregnancy, childbirth, parenting, and the like, visit us online at informedpregnancy.com. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a whole lot. This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike, Dr. Mom Butt Balm. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Balm, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Balm not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. <laughs>